Yo, episode number 40, coming to you from the I Am Studios here in the heart of Los Angeles. And thank you for being here with me. I mean that genuinely. We've had a couple incredible guests recently, but today it's just me and you. And I hope you're hungry because we're going to be talking about food, specifically LA's favorite food throughout history. You know how we do it here at In A Minute. I got to put context, facts, background, and yes, history around this concept, which had me really excited. I'm not just talking about LA's favorite foods of the moment, but we're talking favorite food by decade since 1900. Foods that have left a legacy, not just on LA culture, but worldwide. That's right. Your stomach growling yet? It's time to get the grill fired up and your napkin ready because we're talking about LA's favorite foods of all time. All right, y'all, let's get into it. So we start, as always, with something that happened in LA this week. Thanksgiving is coming. And that is the biggest food holiday of the year in LA or otherwise. And I did some research on the history of Thanksgiving in Los Angeles, but you're going to have to wait for that. It's at the end. But it got me thinking about how our amazing and incredible food culture developed here in Los Angeles. And as we've discussed, LA is the bastion of both fast food and healthy food throughout the world. With everything from McDonald's and Taco Bell to avocado toast and kale salad being attributed to the culinary minds of Los Angeles. So initially, I just wanted to find out LA's favorite foods. That's a, that's a tough ask and very, very subjective. But the more I researched, the more I was excited to see the growth and the evolution of L.A. food throughout time. And as Jonathan Gold and others have done so well, you can tell the story of Los Angeles through its food. So I want to do that chronologically through the decades. And I'm going to need your feedback here because it's not an exact science. This isn't finding polls, stats, or numbers saying this was L.A.'s favorite food in 1927. What I'm doing here and how I'm kind of putting this together, this is a combination of both the proliferation of a dish or a meal, as well as its impact on the culture of LA and throughout the world. Now, I'm only doing what I consider modern times, post-refrigeration and the modern day food processes. And that means starting off with the first decade of the 20th century. For the 1900s, we're talking about tamales. Yeah. Keep this in mind. Tamales came from street vendors, which have long played a significant role in the culture and economic growth of LA. I mean, today it's a $500 million industry per year with an estimated 10,000 jobs. And it's also often the first profession of immigrants in the city. And that was the same at the end of the 19th century. Mexican and Chinese immigrants were some of the first street vendors. They sold everything from pig's feet to oyster cocktails to sandwiches but the majority of them hawked tamales. The tamales were prepared elsewhere and they were kept warm in steam buckets and the men, almost always men, were known as tamaleros. In fact, the first known street vendor in LA was Nicolas Martinez, who sold tamales in a bucket on his head. But this was the way it was and they were popular. And the city had tried to ban them. It's kind of similar to now. The city council proposed to not allow these tamaleros in the open streets until nine at night because they were taking business away from restaurants. 
but people wanted tamales. And by 1901, more than a hundred tamale wagons roamed Los Angeles, each paying a dollar a month for a city business license. And tamales were a huge business. Don Miguel Mexican Foods, excellent tamales, both of which are LA legacy businesses, are still around and selling their product in grocery stores. Grocery stores today. And in 1905, the YMCA had a fundraiser. So what did they do? They sold tamales. And still the restaurants and downtown businessmen weren't happy about it. So there was a letter to the city council asking the tamale wagons be prohibited completely because they didn't reflect well on the district. Now, luckily, there was Councilman Fred Wheeler who defended the tamaleros and the tamales. Listen to this quote. The tamale put Los Angeles on the map. These wagons are an institution of our city. Drive these wagons from our streets? Never. Now that is the food of LA and the first favorite food of Los Angeles in the 20th century, tamales. 1910s, the French dip. Now, the French dip is a very LA item. And, and it grew and expanded, but it's so associated. Whenever I talk about food on LA in a minute, everybody's like, talk about Philippe and Coles, talk about the French dip. So I got to include this in the 1910s, even though the exact origin of the French dip is highly, highly contested. Now, Philippe Matthew of Philippe's, he opened Philippe's in 1908. And he is said to have invented this sandwich in 1918. He said a police officer asked him if he would split a large loaf of French bread and fill it with roast pork. Yes, roast pork, pork, not beef. And he said the police officer asked him to cut it in half and put on pickles, onions and olives. And then dip it in the juice from the pan. So at the bottom of the large pan, which had roast meat on it, that was the first dip. And because Philippe was French, it was called the French dip. Even though he didn't call it that at the time, it was called that by other. But that's not etched in stone. There are also various other stories. So somebody who jumped in was Cole. Henry Cole had opened Cole's in 1908 in the Pacific Electric Building, which was a big train depot and had a lot of foot traffic, a lot of walking traffic, and somewhat similar uh, it was a check cashing operation. It was a bar. So it's a little bit different business. But Henry Cole's claim is that he had a friend that was working there who was in the kitchen when somebody wanted a sandwich. And that friend dropped bread into beef juice and still served it to the customer. And the customer liked it so much that he told the next customer in line who ordered the same thing. And then lines began popping up at Cole's. Now, that's also disputed because that story was told by somebody who was not there in 1947. So it is disputed, but what's not disputed is that they both serve French dip. They're both delicious, and it's a true L.A. item. And listen to this. It got big fast. Newspaper articles, advertisements began popping up by 1930, as far flung as Iowa, Try this one, something new, the French dipped pork sandwich. So the thing caught on quick and went coast to coast. And by 1964, a company opened up in Ohio called Arby's, which made sandwiches that were very reminiscent of the French dip and basically built an entire fast food business 
on the back of that sandwich. International success. So the French dip is LA's favorite food item of the 1910s. Then, well, you need something to wash those French dips down with, right? So by the 1920s, we get smoothies. <laughs> What's more LA than a smoothie? I mean, long before Erwan sold $25 smoothies, the smoothie was born right here in Los Angeles. 1926, Julius Freed, the Julius in Orange Julius, moved to California from Montana and he opened a fresh squeezed orange juice stall on Broadway downtown. Now, fresh squeezed orange juice was a big deal. I mean, this is the land of health and oranges and, and you know, they didn't pasteurize and have pre-bottled OJ in those days. So it's a big deal. But his real estate agent, Bill Hamlin, couldn't drink the orange juice. It upset his stomach. It was too acidic. So he wanted to find an orange-based drink that would sell better. And he had a chemistry background. So he devised a compound of ingredients, all food-based, no chemicals, that gave it a smooth, creamy, airy texture. But at its core were the oranges. And that became the orange drink, which his customers liked. And his sales were $100 a day, which in the 1920s was astronomical. And people would continually ask, give me an orange, Julius. And thus, the orange Julius was conceived. They went into business. They were franchising before Ray Kroc. They leased locations for stands. They made money on real estate and it was a wild success. They had 100 locations, including one in Manhattan by 1929. And eventually had 6,000 locations. And they were the forerunner. They were there before Smoothie King. Before Jamba Juice. And of course, before Erewhon's $25 smoothie. So yeah, the smoothie, LA's favorite food and legacy food of the 1920s. Now the 1930s roll around. This is after the Depression. Or during the Depression, I should say. And people weren't... Uh, you know, health conscious. They just wanted to eat and they wanted something hearty. Well, the hamburger, the cheeseburger had just been invented by Lionel Sternberger at the right spot in 1924. And that set the world aflame. But it was the chili burger that was invented by Tommy DeForest, known as Tomain Tommy. Tomain, P-T-O-M-A-I-N-E, who had a sawdust floor covered restaurant called Tomain Tommy's in Lincoln Heights. Now it opened in 1919, but he rolled out the chili burger in the late twenties. And this begot an entire culture. Generations of Angelinos have been raised on chili. They said the chili burger is the milestone that starts the traceable history of burgers in Los Angeles. The first step of what constituted the character of the Los Angeles hamburger scene. Jack Smith, famed columnist, wrote an article in 1974 and said the dish was one of the most important parts of the history of Los Angeles. Why? Because Tomain Tommy's was one of the first places that had a diverse clientele, including doctors coming off the late shift, fight fans coming home from the Olympic Auditorium, White collar, blue collar, people associated with Hollywood. Everybody wanted some chili and they wanted chili burgers. And now you can't go 10 blocks in LA without finding a chili place 
And one of those is the original Tommy's, which in itself, though not related to Tomaine Tommy's, at least not directly, opened in 1946 by Tommy Kulaks and is probably beside In-N-Out the most L.A. of burgers because chili really is Los Angeles. And it all started with Tomaine Tommy's in the 1930s. L.A.'s favorite food, the chili burger. So now we get to the 1940s. You got burgers. Now you got hot dogs. There was hot dog on a stick. There was Walsh's, which became Cupid's. There was the blimp, which became Carl's. That was originally a hot dog place. But it was really all about pinks. Pink's hot dogs. Betty and Paul Pink borrowed $50 from Betty's mom to buy a hot dog push cart about 50 feet from the corner of La Brea and Melrose. They sold hot dogs for 10 cents and Cokes for a nickel. They didn't even have electricity, so they plugged into a hardware store with a 200-foot cord that they purchased there. They rented the lot for $15 a month, and when the landlord doubled the rent, the hot dogs were so popular and selling so fast, they just said, you know what? We're going to buy it. They got a loan from B of A for $4,000 and purchased the lot. And now 80 plus years later, Pink's is not just an institution, but their hot dogs are a symbol of Los Angeles. I mean, they paint the restaurant blue for the Dodgers. What's more, what's more LA than a Dodger dog? What's more LA than a street dog? We're talking hot dogs start a leg, a revolution. This is a legacy. Legacy of LA hot dogs which started as L.A.'s favorite food in the 1940s. Now, 1950s, it's an interesting time. This is like the, the consummate Americana culture. I mean, everything was very whitewashed, pun intended, and very plain and, you know, meals and food had less emphasis on cooking and it, it was a difficult time. And well, 1950s, what did pop up were diners, you know, the famous googie architecture, floor to ceiling glass, strong angles, um, really, really famous looking buildings, uh, norms, for instance. Well, there was also a place called Tiny Nailers and Tiny Nailers invented something called the patty melt. Ground beef, Swiss cheese, caramelized onions, griddled on rye bread. And you know the patty melt. I love a patty melt. A little greasy, but so delicious. And Tiny Nailers was owned by a man named Tiny Nailer who also owned Biff's Drive-Ins. But Tiny Nailer's coffee shop were his restaurants from the 30s on down through the 50s when he put those beef patties between the rye bread and called it the patty melt. Now, Patty Melt was the star of the show at Tiny Nailers. At Biff's, they eventually bought Dupars. And aside from those pancakes, it's all about the Patty Melt. But think about how it defines the late night diner. We're talking Denny's, Coco's, Marie Callender's, Jerry's, all of which came from L.A. And all of which feature Patty Melt prominently. So even though the patty melt hasn't quite been at the forefront of cuisine, it's identifiable and it is so Los Angeles. And that is the 1950s favorite food of Los Angeles, the patty melt. Now, 
We haven't talked about breakfast yet. But by the 1960s, <laughs> we're about to jump into a big time. Talking about donuts. You know, today there are more donut shops than taco shops in LA. That is the truth. There's 1,600 donut shops, one for every 4,000 residents. It's because LA loves the donut. There's one donut shop for every 30, for every 4,000 residents compared to one for every 30,000 residents nationwide. I mean, it's undeniable that donuts are an indelible part of Los Angeles food culture. And even though Randy's Donuts may be the most recognizable aspect of that culture with their 32-foot donut atop the shop, it all started with Big Donut. Donut machine salesman Russell Wendell founded a chain of drive-in donut shops that really embedded that huge donut in LA culture. And I mean, that became Randy's and it became the symbol of Los Angeles. I mean, now we're talking about the donut hole in La Puente, Donut Man and Glendory, Glendora, Primos and Westwood, places that have been around for generations. But it's really Winchell's, the first major donut chain, which was opened by Vern Winchell. 1961. He began franchising and he expanded fast. I'm talking hundreds of stores by the end of the 1960s. The donuts were taken over Los Angeles and Winchell's was so big that it merged with Denny's and Winchell was named the CEO. Think about that. Winchell's was bigger than Denny's because that's how big donuts were. And Winchell's eventually had a thousand locations far away as Japan, Spain, Holland, Korea, Philippines, and was selling $200 million of donuts per year. I mean, that is the explosion of donut culture. And he was the forerunner to Tenoy, the donut king. You know the story, Christie's Donuts expanded his empire, empire sponsored hundreds of Cambodian refugees, helped them lease and buy their own donut shops. Noy introduced the famous pink box. I mean, all this came from Los Angeles. And today, there's a donut shop on every corner. Thank you, 1960s. Favorite food of Los Angeles, the donut. But again, we got a counterbalance. I got my sugar running. My, my diabetes about to kick in. Got to offset that. So the 1970s, LA's favorite food became salad. What? Yeah. Simply put, salad culture originated in Los Angeles. The health food capital of the world, at least in theory. I mean, think about it. We're so image conscious. We have Hollywood. People are on screen. You got to look good. You got you to be healthy. You got to eat salad. But don't take it from me. Take it from Sylvia Lovegren, the author of Fashionable Food. She said, Hollywood gave rise to the salad. It's not just the Caesar and the Cobb, even though those were strong as well. They made salad fashionable as if this healthy lifestyle originated in Los Angeles. So whether it did or it didn't, the perception is the reality. And don't forget Alice Waters, the one who basically invented California cuisine, Shea Panisse in Berkeley. She came from Van Nuys High School right here in LA. And right around that time, 1970s, the FDA for the first time put out eating guidelines and the food pyramid. So people were essentially mandated, at least by their mom and a doctor, to, to eat healthy. And that meant more vegetables. So with Hollywood portraying salads as fashionable, 
it was 1970 that Madame Wu rolled out the Chinese chicken salad at her eponymous restaurant in Santa Monica. Cary Grant, famous actor, told her about the dish. She changed a little bit based on something she experienced in Shanghai, but it's basically shredded chicken, fried noodles, green onions, toasted almonds, a little slice of a Mandarin, segment of Mandarin. And now that Chinese chicken salad is perhaps the most ordered lunch meal of the last 50 years. Think about that. Started right here in Los Angeles, 1970s. And yeah, salad fashion changed French, Mediterranean, Asian salads, but salads are an area of creativity and they're always reflective of Los Angeles. So salads, the consummate LA lunch, the Chinese chicken salad, most ordered lunch dish ever. 1970s, Los Angeles, favorite food. Now, 1980s, we get to one of my favorite. LA's favorite food, 1980s, sushi. Yeah. I've already talked about Ichiro Mashida, the Los Angeles sushi chef from the little Tokyo restaurant, Tokyo Kaikan. He invented the California roll here in the late 60s. But the real story begins when Harry Wolf Jr., a Jewish man from Chicago, a salesman, met Noritoshi Kanai, a man who had served in the Japanese army. They met in a trade show. And Wolf yelled at him. I'm serious. This is a real story. And I'm going to do a full episode on this uh, for LA in a minute at some point. It's such a great story with more depth. But Wolf yelled at him, are you Japanese? And he told him, if you want to succeed in America, you need a good doctor, a good lawyer, and a good Jewish friend. And from there, the friendship and the partnership took hold. They began to hang out together, party together, explore together. And Kanai took Wolf to sushi and he was obsessed. Not in that little foodie, I mean, that little social media, ooh, obsessed, but he was obsessed. He went to every sushi restaurant he could, went to Japan multiple times, and he said, Sushi is destined to take America by storm. And people thought he was nuts. People thought Americans will never eat raw food, especially fish. But Wolf was dedicated. And little by little, sushi started to proliferate. They opened restaurants. And they opened the first sushi bar, Kawafuku. And it was a smash hit. And by 19, late 1970s, sushi was mentioned in the LA Times and people just got turned on to it. There was a review of a sushi restaurant in Tarzana on Ventura Boulevard, which was a predecessor to the strip mall spots that now dot the Valley's main artery. I mean, Ventura Boulevard is Sushi Row. This is the largest concentration of sushi restaurants in the Western Hemisphere. And this all goes back to Wolf and Kanai in the 1970s. And listen to this stat. How fast did sushi catch on? The number of sushi restaurants in Los Angeles increased from 39 to 116 in four years from 1976 to 1980. And then the 1980s saw sushi ascend to a new level, especially with places like Nazawa and these Michelin star places that open. But sushi was everywhere. And today... There are more than 1,400 sushi restaurants in Los Angeles. So yeah, LA's favorite food in the 1980s, sushi. Now the 1990s, ooh boy, the taco. 
thick corn tortillas, maybe one, maybe two, that have been put on the plancha with a little bit of oil, some tomatillo salsa, some chopped onions, some cilantro, whatever meat you want from carne asada to al pastor to carnitas to lengua. Oh my God. I mean, this is my favorite food, probably outright. I mean, I have a lot of favorite foods, but damn, even just thinking about tacos. But going back to Cielito Lindo on Alvera Street, that was taquitos in the 30s. We owe everything to King Taco founder Raul Martinez. We've talked about the first food truck, uh, his story, American Dream. King Taco turned from a food truck to a an institution with more than 20 locations all over L.A. that really introduced L.A. to the taco. But it was 1996, an article called Midnight Tacos by Jonathan Gold at that point in the LA Weekly. And it was talking about El Gran Burrito, but he could have been talking about any tacos in Los Angeles. I got to read this verbatim because this is Jonathan Gold. And this will tell you why this was not just LA's favorite food then, but has probably remained so. Listen to this. This is Jonathan Gold. There's something about the smell of charring meat the island of warmth and light in the cold dark that can practically compel you to stand around, to eat off of soggy paper plates balanced on the roof of your car, to guzzle things like grape soda or the hibiscus blossom infusion Jamaica that you ordinarily wouldn't drink. You munch still muddy radishes in a vain attempt to disguise the smell of cumin and raw onion that'll crawl into bed with you like a faithful pet. The certainty that all is beautiful and holy about the mess of corn and gristle in front of you would dissipate as soon as you said hello. If you've been there, you know. The chi, that elusive fire energy of tacos, vanishes seconds after the tacos are served. And unless you're at a first-class place, you'll never experience it at all. It's a grand taco, sizzling hot, oily, glowing with citrus and black pepper, the kind of taco that can for a fleeting instant, seem like the best thing that ever happened to your life until it's time to get the next one. A truly fine taco may be something like the crack cocaine of the food world. Jonathan Gold, 1996. Pretty hard to argue with the crack cocaine of fast f- of the food world being the favorite food of Los Angeles in the 1990s. And you know what? That spawned the favorite food of Los Angeles in the 2000s. Food trucks. What? That's not a food. That's all kinds of foods. Well, it's an intimate issue for Los Angeles, both because of street vending and the the constant controversy behind it, but because of a culture that turned into a full-fledged revolution. And yeah, started with Roy Choi and Kogi. Choi was fresh off of culinary school working at the Beverly Hilton as a chef de cuisine, and he met his future business partner, Mark Mangetta, who ended up changing his life and the future of food forever. Choi wanted to open a brick-and-mortar restaurant, but Mangetta convinced him to have a food truck instead of a food stand or restaurant and to trust his gut and go with Korean-style barbecue on a Mexican tortilla, Korean tacos. And just like that, Kogi was born. Now, of course, Twitter... And the timing of that had everything to do with it. 
But boy, this is one of those, if you know, you know, if you were there, you remember that line, the tweet coming in, people rushing to spots. Ours was near Cal State Northridge. Sometimes they were in Westwood. Often they were downtown. They were all over and you were chasing the food truck. And it all comes from Kogi. And don't forget, there was a, a housing bus, an economic recession during this time. And the recession combined with technology's advances, smartphone proliferation made street food be hip and chic and food trucks just kept expanding and expanding and chefs from high-end restaurants were being laid off and guess what it's way more inexpensive you can't start your own restaurant but sure you go get a food truck it was a smaller investment and you could cook the same kind of food or even doper food so yeah today there are more than 4,000 licensed food trucks in L.A. and 43,000 in U.S. And that was L.A.'s favorite food in the 2000s, a food truck. Now we're getting more recent. We go to the 2010s. What a sight. Mona Holmes, the wonderful Mona Holmes. Wow, a huge debt of gratitude to for writing an article about me in Eater in May of last year. And I'm forever thankful but she's always been on my radar as a fantastic writer for Eater LA. And a story she wrote in 2021 called LA's Lost Hot Chicken History tells us about LA's favorite food in the 2010s, hot chicken. It starts actually in 1992 with Martin Prince, who prepared Southern California's first hot chicken at the Lancaster Poppy Festival. And it sold out that day. But he didn't open again. It was his, it was his, he was a grandnephew of the man who invented it in Nashville, by the way. Thornton Prince III in the 1930s. But it was a one night only, one day only in LA. And for the next 23 years, it was difficult, if not impossible, to find hot chicken in LA. That is, until Howlin' Ray's popped up. Johnny Ray's own, who had worked with Thomas Keller, Gordon Ramsay, Nobu Matsuhisa, now worked with his wife, Amanda Chapman. And they thought up the Howlin' Ray's idea after a trip to Nashville where they had, of course, hot chicken. And it was Amanda's inspiration to roll out the hot chicken sando, which was basically that hot chicken on hamburger buns. And they had, well, appropriately for Los Angeles, a food truck. And each time the truck made an appearance, crowds were bigger and bigger. By 2016, they got a brick and mortar in Chinatown. And to this day, the lines for Alan Ray's are ridiculous because, yes, they started all this. It has a rabid fan base. And it was the forerunner to Dave's Hot Chicken, one of my favorite local businesses, because of their story starting as a pop-up in East Hollywood in a parking lot. All of a sudden, within three years, having more than 100 locations partially owned by Drake. You can't go anywhere without seeing them. They're on pace to have 500 locations within the next three years and other restaurants, other hot chicken places all over the plate. This was huge for five, six, to this day, you fried chicken is replaced by hot chicken here in Los Angeles. Even big time restaurants reworked their menus to include hot chicken dishes. There's pop-ups, Glendale, San Fernando Valley. Michael Mina opened a takeout joint. Rockbird, they ditched their Cornish game hens in favor of deep fried chicken sandwiches. And of course, Kim Prince, 
of the Martin and Thornton Prince legacy opened up Hotville Chick Chicken in Crenshaw in 2019. Now, that closed down, and it's a tough biz because it's competitive, but we owe a debt of gratitude to the Prince family, and hot chicken was the dish, was the favorite food of Los Angeles in the 2010s. Now, 2020s, what is it? What's today's food? Not necessarily your favorite, but what do you see popping? What's LA's favorite right now? What I say? I say it's birria. Birria. My wife always kind of teases me about the pronunciation. I don't blame her. But I get this backstory from Bill Esparza, a good author. Follow him on Twitter too. He wrote LA Mexicano, Recipes, People, and Places. Really good info. But bir birria started in the 1950s. There's a taquero in, who moved to Tijuana, Don Guadalupe Zarate. And he started selling birria de chivo, which was oven-roasted goat in adobo. And he soon switched to beef for a greater yield and profit. But what made it different and became LA style was he added more liquid so the birria wouldn't burn. It was soup style, birria de res, which is now known as Tijuana style. And it's the one that you see all over LA. But for a long time, it sort of stayed a Tijuana secret. Till it was discovered by people from Los Angeles, as usual. But notably, Ruben Ramirez and Oscar Gonzalez, who set up a birria stand in Oscar's driveway in South Central. Friends came over. Everybody loved it. And they had a couple brothers who'd worked for Nordstrom in marketing. So they marketed their truck. They, they, they marketed their business. and They opened a truck, Birria Gonzalez, in 2015. And they parked it outside of a barbershop. And they thought it would be successful if people would just eat birria while they waited to get their haircuts. Well... Got a lot more successful than that. And it kind of started, it planted the seeds for what would become one of the biggest, I hate to use that word trend, but it is a food trend in Los Angeles. And I'll, I'll address that. But it's worth noting that in LA at the time, birria was usually only weekend only, family outing. Uh, my wife's family, they're from Zacatecas. My wife said she was sick of birria because it was at all the weddings, all the gatherings. And she had enough, but that's where it was. It wasn't usually small walk-up items until Birrieria Gonzalez. And a couple years later, Teddy Vasquez, who was driving for Uber, saved up for cooking gear to sell his own Birria de Res. And he opened Teddy's Red Tacos. Now, you've seen that name. You've seen their tacos. They're very, quote-unquote, Instagrammable, as are the other beauteous. But there's one gorgeous post that I'm going to post by Ivan Gonzalez that made the world want to dunk their tacos into this steaming red consomme. And that's what, at least in my mind, makes it birria. Like, it's it's not quite a stew. It's not quite a machaca. But it's like shredded. And it's it's so, like, just, just different. And it's Instagrammable. And his social media influencers started to highlight birria and these young kids, Teddy, Oscar, Ruben, Ivan, they were social media savvy and the images flooded the internet, red tacos being plunged into this consomme and the food trucks won followers and customers and birria was everywhere. Don't believe me? Today, El Pollo Loco has birria 
Del Taco has birria. And yeah, Taco Bell has birria. So yes, this modern LA legacy is the new favorite food of the city in the 2020s. Give me your comments. Let me know what you think both now and in the past. What did I miss? What did I forget? And what should be on the list? Now, one thing to do in Los Angeles this week. I always love to end up with this. Here's what you do. Enjoy Thanksgiving, however you do it. For me, I come from a tiny family. I mean tiny. It's my parents and me. I was an only child. And we'd have maybe six or seven people in my house for Thanksgiving. But we loved the holidays. My dad's favorite holiday. And honestly, it's mine. I cook. But growing up, it was my parents. Maybe my mom's parents till they till her dad passed away and me. But it's usually my mom, my dad, my grandma and me. But my mom did it right. She'd make a turkey, which is my dad's favorite food. I always remember him carving the turkey and eating what seemed like half of it as he was carving it. We'd have mashed potatoes, sweet potatoes, and my mom's specialty green bean casserole, which I still make to this day. And yeah, that green bean casserole was out of a can, but somehow my mom made it taste special. And I still love it. And you know we'd finish off with pumpkin and pecan pie with extra whipped cream. But did you know that Thanksgiving wasn't really celebrated in L.A. until 1871? And even then, it was only under the auspices of a fundraiser for the L.A. Fire Department, which was even struggling to stay, stay alive. How was that the case? Thanksgiving, the most, one of the most American of holidays, right? Well, from the time of the founding fathers till the time of Lincoln, the date of observance varied state to state. And California wasn't even a state until 1850. And modern Thanksgiving wasn't proclaimed for all states until 1863 when Lincoln finally set a national Thanksgiving for the final Thursday in November. Get this. It was a celebration, at least according to Lincoln, for the military successes of the Union, which pissed some people off, especially in the South, because there was a civil war. And if you're celebrating Thanksgiving and celebrating the Union, well, I'm with the Confederacy. I'm not celebrating with you. And guess what? L.A.? <laughs> L.A. was a Confederate sympathizer. 75% of Los Angeles sided with the South. Pro-slavery, pro-Confederacy in the, in the 1860s. So for the first eight years of that proclamation, it was shunned. Now, you can back up a little bit when California Governor John Bigler in 1855 issued his official proclamation, which was reprinted in full in L.A.'s first newspaper, the L.A. Star. But it was ignored. No festivities, no turkey, no observed holiday, despite the proclamation. Not here in L.A. In 1861, L.A.'s first hotel, the Bella Union, did have a grand layout of turkeys, chickens, etc., but otherwise, according to that same L.A. Star newspaper, Thanksgiving was unknown here. Now, 1862, the Bell Union hosted again, but it was sparsely attended. And even though there was, quote, dinner parties by several families in town, it wasn't really observed. So 1863, the year Lincoln issued his proclamation, the peak of the Civil War. This is from the L.A. Star. No notice was taken of Thanksgiving because our citizens think they have nothing to be thankful for. Damn, that's not that long ago in L.A. that people weren't even observing it. So all the way through the 1860s, 
It's quiet, quiet, nothing. Culminating 1870. Thanksgiving was called the dullest day of the season, even though it was a public holiday. Quote, the day was only peculiarly noticeable for the unusual quiet that reigned all throughout the city. So not only was it not observed, people almost intentionally unobserved. Alas, the next year, 1871, a grand Thanksgiving ball was given for the fire department, which, by the way, was all volunteer. This was not funded by the city. So they had to have fundraisers for the freaking fire department. And I got an episode coming about the fire department history. But the grand Thanksgiving ball was held at a skating rink. Interesting place to have Thanksgiving. But it was found to be the affair of the season and a huge feast and amazing attendance. And guess what? Made enough money that the volunteer fire department was able to afford a hose jumper and a fire engine towed by horses. Of course, this is 1871 and the next year, 1872. That's what I consider is finally, finally Thanksgiving universally celebrated because the paper said 1872 Thanksgiving was observed with the utmost propriety. Turkey dinner was universally enjoyed and many pleasant family reunions took place. But that's what it took for Los Angeles to celebrate Thanksgiving. So you can thank the fire department in your blessings this week and your, in your thankfulness, thank the LA fire department. It was before they were officials when they were still volunteers, but who knows how long LA would have continued ignoring Thanksgiving if it weren't for that th fundraiser. So this is really in my mind, the 151st year of Thanksgiving in Los Angeles. And however you celebrate, make sure you do it with your family, your friends, and a couple of your favorite foods. Hopefully at least one of Los Angeles' favorite foods throughout the decades. And that is episode 40 of In a Minute with Evan Lovett. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you're running out to get something to eat. I know I am. But before you do... Leave me a five-star rating. It is super helpful. If you have some time, leave a review. Every rating, every review allows In a Minute with Evan Lovett to get more momentum and it helps us grow. And please, please remember to follow and subscribe. That's one of the most helpful things you can do to support. I appreciate you being here with me and happy Thanksgiving to you and your family, wherever they may be. All right, y'all. It's been a minute.